Hello, Velo News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News Magazine, coming at you with another tech podcast. And I am joined, of course, by Ben Delaney, editorial director here at Velo News. Ben, how you doing? Ho, ho, ho. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays, indeed. We are... Uh, at the end of a decade here, and we have, uh, we're 10 years wiser, 10 years older, 10 years more miles in our legs, and we're going to talk a little bit about the things in the past decade that uh, have really wowed us in the bike industry, and a few things that haven't. Uh, so we're going to talk today about the best, or most interesting, I guess, tech stories uh, of the last decade. Uh, ben, what, just, just before we even dive into our list, what... Uh, what, what do you? What's your general take on the last decade in bike development? What would you? How would you summarize it in one word? In one word, I'm not prepared for these questions. I know that's why I, I asked. I think often the trends are to go a little too far and then uh, scooch back to where we should have been. So I think that's fun. It's, well, it's fun to look at a, a full decade's worth of not not just what's hot right now, but what was hot uh, a few years ago and what actually ended up being a good idea versus what was a little too much. Mm. For instance, fat bikes or Ples tires or aero bikes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the first one out of the gate uh, is a little too much. Mm -hmm. And then you get this case of one-upsmanship where, mm -hmm. well, my bike's more aero than yours, et cetera, until you've, everybody's riding 100-millimeter deep wheels or, or six-inch wide tires. And right. Then, right. then we have an aha moment to realize, you know, maybe we should back up a bit. Mm -hmm. And then, sure, a little, aero, a little aerodynamic benefit is a good thing. Yeah. A little more extra rubber is a good thing, but we don't have to take things as far as we can absolutely push them. So that's, that's not one word, but yeah. that's self, well, okay, how about this? Self-correction. 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 I like that. I was going to call it's it. a hyphenated word. Uh, we'll, we'll let it slide. Okay. We'll All right. Slide. We're grammar nerds. All right. Let's, let's jump right into it. Yeah, let's let's do idea. our top 20 list. All right. Let's, Kick us off here. Let's start with uh, number 20, coming in as uh, one of the top uh, stories of the decade is the BOA dial. Now, it's pretty much ubiquitous at this point on cycling shoes, but it wasn't always that way. Now, we, we saw the first BOA dial uh, officially in 2001, and it was a snowboard boot uh, invention. And it wasn't until about 2008, 2009 that we actually started seeing BOA dials on um, road shoes and mountain shoes. Uh, what was your first experience with a, a BOA dial shoe? Uh I'll tell you a, a tale of a boa. Maybe not the first experience, All but right. um, like a lot of things, the first first few iterations aren't perfect. So I was skeptical of it, liked the technology, uh, and then found myself about 50 miles into a 100-mile loop with a blown boa and had to deconstruct my saddlebag to strap my shoe together so I could pedal home. So, <laughs> and, and yes, my riding mates had the exact same reaction. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, fancy new shoes you got there, knucklehead. <laughs> Too bad your foot won't stay in them. Yeah. That was a good grandpa voice. But things have progressed. Yeah. Uh, now boas work very well. Mm -hmm. uh, there's multiple types of boas. You know, uh, I like the S-Work shoes. Mm -hmm. You can really fine-tune them, both uh, tightening and, and loosening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now we, and we've got different types of boas now. I mean, there's the IP1 dial, which is kind of their, their top end, uh, which just works so wonderfully uh, with you know millimeter adjustments. I mean, you could really dial in your shoes in a way that you you never could before, uh, and they become more reliable. And probably for roadies, most importantly, they become a lot lighter. So we're now seeing some of the lightest shoes on the market still with boa dials on it. So a lot of those a lot of those reasons to stay away from boas before are just they just don't exist anymore. Now there's really it's it's almost pure benefit here. Just works super well. And unlike Velcro shoes, you can throw your shoes in a bag with your cycling clothes and not destroy them. Yeah. yeah. Velcro is, is a thing of the devil in your, in your gear bag. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, all right. Should we move on to number? Number 19. Number 19 with Casey Kasem. Uh, number 19 is internal cable routing. It's everywhere, man. Yeah. I mean, are, are there any bikes anymore with external routing? All right. This would be, be a little hyperbolic to say there's none left. You say this and the entire NAB's audience <laughs> shakes their fist at you, Dan. I can hear titanium yeah. rattling at me. <laughs> Angry mechanics everywhere. Yeah. Well, so as I, speaking of mechanics, I used to be one. I was a mechanic for a long time in bike shops. I was a shop rat. And it's, you know, internal routing is not a really a new thing. It's been around for a long, long time uh, in some iteration or another. But really, it came into its own in the last five to ten years. You know, it, it, it was the sort of thing where it, when a bike came in and it had internal routing, you know, the mechanics would run, oh, lunchtime, got to go, you know, don't, I don't want that one. Yeah, sure. Um, because it was just such a, an endeavor. It could take a whole day to route the thing because, you know, you put a cable in there and where does it go? You don't know. Now there is sleeves that go through there's they're integrated into the frame there's tools that that are specially made from from brands like like pro and park tool uh to actually make it a pretty simple process to integrate your cables and housing into the frame so that leads to a nice sleek look uh and and it also believe it or not can help with some aerodynamics um but i will say this I still do go running for the door when I see an integrated cockpit that I have to <laughs> run things through the stem. Fair enough. Yeah. How about things that make you go running number 18, bottom bracket standards? Oh, God. <laughs> that hurts my soul. I mean, how, how many uh, metric tons of internet comments are there yeah. just on bottom brackets? Yeah. I, I, it's, it's funny. If you had asked me 20 years ago if the word standard would be a dirty word. <laughs> I would have laughed at you, but here we are. Um, it's also a double speak word. It is. It Standard is. Standard singular. Yeah. And, and we have so many of them. And I think that really happens. So, you know, I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, the, the dreaded press fit bottom brackets and BB30s that press into your bottom bracket shell uh, is not a new concept. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, there's been bottom brackets pressed into frames for, for you know, geez, I mean, going back to the earliest bikes. What was different was everybody came out with their own, so there was no, quote-unquote, standard. And, and when you have a new technology with no tolerances that match, you get creaks. And creaks is what really was the downfall of these press-fit-style bottom brackets. Which brings us to 2015. And I'm going to toot my own horn here. I think this is important to note. I think everybody needs to know this. Back in 2015, I went to the launch of the T47 bottom bracket, which was which is an oversized bottom bracket bearing, just like your press fit, which is exactly which is essentially what the the advantage of a press fit is, right? It's a bigger bearing, uh, better bearing life. Uh, T47 takes that advantage and adds threads. Seems pretty logical, right? And uh, when I wrote the article about this, everybody said, "Oh, that's just what we need as another standard." But I will tell you this, T47's coming, uh, and now we're seeing brands like Trek using it, and we're going to see other big brands using it because it just it makes a lot of sense. The, with the standard wars, I, I'm declaring it. The standard wars are over. No, I don't believe it. I think the standard wars are over. I don't believe it a minute. Uh, so I'm going to say I called it. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put it on the record. All right. It's on the record. I called it in 2015. T47's coming, putting an end to the bottom bracket wars. It's bold. It is. Number 17. Number 17 uh, is tubeless technology. Uh, again, 
This is new, quote unquote, to, to the road side, I think, um, largely because it, it really didn't translate well from the mountain bike side early on. Uh, it's been around in mountain bikes for, man, I, I remember racing on a, a tubeless setup in, uh, in 2000 or 2001, uh, and I set it up wrong, so by the end of the race, it was completely flat. Um, but, you know, it, it evolved pretty quickly on the mountain bike side, and it, it's really the, the, the standard now. Um, but it took a long time to get to the roadside. You know, we saw uh, this just this past year, Elio Viviani, quote unquote, won the stage at the Giro, the 2019 Giro on tubeless tires, although he was relegated, so he didn't actually get the win. Um, and, you know, Tony Martin was using clinchers, so we knew in TTs earlier than that. So we knew that we knew that this technology was coming. Why, why didn't we see it earlier? Well, the, the first time I saw a road tubeless in the pro ranks was 2015. Uh, at the start of Paris Roubaix, Sylvain Chavanel was running G1s mm-hmm. on a cyclocross frame. Hmm. Um, that was the it may have happened before then, but that was the first time I had seen road tubeless in action. Obviously, Roubaix is a different beast. Um, wh- to answer your question, why haven't we seen it? I think some of the benefits that are so important for a mountain bike just aren't as crucial for road. Mm. So for mountain bike, yes, it's a no-brainer. Uh, for gravel. Uh, in some instances, arguably cyclocross, but certainly for gravel, makes perfect sense. You can mm-hmm. run low pressure. Uh, you don't have to worry about pinch flats, and it can seal up small punctures. Mm-hmm. Um, pinch flatting is seldom an issue in standard road sure, sure. Uh, pressure situations. So, mm-hmm. my personal take on it: that road tubeless is great until it's not. Mm-hmm. I'm a kid from New Mexico where there's goat heads, which are the bane of riding mm-hmm. existence in yeah. uh, fall and winter. Uh, lots of little pinprick size holes f- for things like that. Tubeless is fantastic. For big slits, it's not going to seal, and it's going to make a giant mess, and it's going to make changing that flat on the side of the road mm-hmm. uh, more challenging than just a standard clincher. So mm-hmm. you got to admit it's kind of kind of festive when the 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 sealant's spewing out of your slit in your tire, and it just makes a sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're riding behind your <laughs> riding buddies behind you. Love it because they're getting like the, Sprayed, yeah. the pigeon poo spray in your face, <laughs> and it's redecorating the back of your frame and your saddlebag. Yeah. There are benefits. I'm not saying yeah. there are benefits. Right, but. right. Uh, for what it's worth, I was riding road tubeless today. I have not had any road tubeless problems in the year that I've been riding it constantly. Um, so I think we we have entered a sort of a new era of road tubeless, and it'd be interesting to see what the next decade brings us. Absolutely. Number 16. Number 16 is dropper posts. Dropper posts have <laughs> have infiltrated almost everything at this point, every category. Um, obviously, you know, mountain bike is where it started. And, you know, for those of you who, who don't know uh, what a uh, height right saddle, or excuse me, height right seat post is, oh man, Google that thing. It's so cool. Uh, these were these were the height of technology back in the 80s and 90s. Um, it is essentially is a manual dropper post. Um, really cool idea. But really, uh, the dropper posts as we know them didn't hit their stride until, gosh, until what, five, six years ago. It was pretty recent. Yeah. Uh, but they've been around as long as, you know, 
10, 20 years. I mean, it's not a new technology. RockShox had a pretty early one. But it's just in the last few years that we've seen them really get honed, uh, as we have with a lot of the things we're going to talk about today. This this year was a, or this decade was a really good decade for honing technologies. Self-correction. Self-correction. Yeah, maybe the word is honing. Yes, What's honing. the word of the decade? <laughs> um, but now we're seeing, you know, dropper posts. That we've seen a wireless dropper post from RockShox, which, yep. by the way, I love. It's expensive, but it's super, super cool. Just pop it in your frame, done. Um, we're seeing, we're even seeing dropper posts now in the gravel world, uh, with, you know, shorter travel, uh, a gravel uh, dropper post. And uh, I, I personally cannot imagine now riding a mountain bike without one. I mean, I think that's how that really speaks to how uh, revolutionary this idea was. Have you ridden a gravel bike with a dropper post? I have. Uh, I had a bike set up with the left shifter. Hmm to actuate the dropper post cool. and being uh, an old dog this was a new trick and I would often in my little brain think I was shifting the front ring and was surprised when my <laughs> rear end dropped down a few inches so uh, I don't think that's exactly how it was designed but right. yeah obviously the, the, the main benefit is the same as it is on a mountain bike it allows mm-hmm. you to get, get your weight back let the bike move underneath you not get tangled up uh, coming off and on the the back of the saddle. Do you see it becoming ubiquitous in gravel? I mean, it no. seems like it's it's no. it's no, sort no, no. of only tailored for it's, certain things. Yeah, and it's more like a novelty, yeah. supernar gravel. Yeah. Um, where I feel like if you're once you're at that point, why aren't you just riding a mountain bike? Right, right. You know, if you need mountain bike tires yeah. and mountain bike technology, right. And uh, you go go on Twitter with that attitude, and people are gonna <laughs> come at you hot. Well, to each his own. But <laughs> to drop a post on a mountain bike for me, yes, yes, gravel, not gravel. So much. Yeah. All right. Moving on to number 15, everyone's favorite, Strava. If it's not on Strava, did it count? No. While we're getting the microphone set up here, I was arguing with my Garmin because I, I just, it wasn't opening. <laughs> yeah. Need to have that feeling of completion. That's right. Yeah. For me, yeah, I have been using it for years. Mm-hmm. I use it, I think, for a couple main reasons. One's just tracking total mileage keeping up with my friends, talking smack with my friends. Um, but I also love the travel log aspect mm. of it. Um, I'm not so concerned with a friend's or a stranger's mileage or speed or power or whatever, but it's cool to see riders from around the world post photos of their bikes and their local scene and you know, stopping for coffee in Vietnam looks different than it does right. in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 funny. I was definitely an early hater of Strava, uh, and I you know I proudly had a sticker on my bike that said Strava terrorist. You know, I didn't didn't have any love for that, uh, and you know, and I, I was sort of one of those low hanging fruit, like oh, you know, you're just turning everything into a race. And what I found was um, I ride alone a lot, so turning it into a race actually makes it a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think if you you know if you approach it with the right attitude, and uh, and you know, I, there's, I gotta be honest, there's no better feeling than coming back from a ride and seeing those little PRs and, oh my God, a KOM. I've gotten a few of those. Uh, there's also no worse feeling than getting that email and says, uh Oh, someone <laughs> stole your KOM. Um, but it, I think it adds a dimension to, to the ride that, uh, that I didn't have before. And it's, I find it, I find it motivating. Uh, certainly, you know, people abuse it. People can be, too much into it but I, of you know, course you know that's that's people that's not sure. the program sure yeah. and then you know the big data element of it mm-hmm. strava heat maps can be used yeah or uh cities counties mm-hmm. and deciding where to 
add in bike infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to have tracked the rides that I did in other places that I liked and would love to do again, it's all right there. Yeah, uh, it's pretty neat. I, I think Strava's uh, it's it's brought a lot to this sport that I think it's it's hard to deny that it's been net positive. Agreed. Yeah. Number fourteen. This is this is Ben's world. Uh, number fourteen is all about power meters. Is it power meters? Is it how power? do? You, speaking of tracking things, mm, yes. how do you know if you're having any fun if you don't know how much power you are <laughs> producing? So power meters again, not brand new to the decade, but uh, refined and made, if not ubiquitous, at least uh, broadly available mm -hmm. this decade. Prior to it, you had two options. You had SRM and you had PowerTap. Mm -hmm. SRM was the super pricey, super pro option. Uh, and then PowerTap was the very reliable but uh, conf confined to the rear hub right, right. option. Yeah. Uh, Stages uh, launched in 2012 as the left crank based power meter. Uh, the first one to have Bluetooth mm -hmm. as well as Amplets. And uh, enjoyed, a, was still enjoying a good run. Um, enjoyed a run to itself for some time. Mm -hmm. um, and just in the last few years, we've seen everyone and their mother uh, making power meters, not mm -hmm. just uh, pop-up companies uh, focusing just on power meters, but brands are in the game now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also, I you know, I, I always have an eye on the world tour and I think it's really changed racing. Uh, and you know, there's, there's still a controversy swirling around that. Like how, how involved should, should power meters be in the daily Peloton and should they be allowed at all? Sure. Or um, from a fan's perspective, wouldn't it be cool if you could see right. the power data mm -hmm. in the final sprint or on the climbs, whatever NASCAR right. style with right. a real time dashboard. Yeah. And we see that a little bit now and it's super cool to watch as a fan. Uh, so, you know, I think the, 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 the power meter has had a far-reaching influence not only on, on everyday training, but also on the pros. Agreed. Yeah. Number 13. Number 13. I feel like we should have, like, a little music in between each one. Uh, number 13 is plus-size tires. Speaking now, of going too far and coming back. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the prime example of pendulum swings. And, you know, before we got started here, you mentioned fat bikes. Uh, about, about a month ago, I sold my fat bike. And it was a bittersweet day because when that trend hit, I was all in, man. It was so cool. I'm going to go ride in the snow. Uh, and then I, I had a beautiful, beautiful custom-made Meriwether steel. Wow. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Fancy, oh, it was fancy gorgeous. guy. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Five-inch tires. Five-inch tires. That's bigger than my motorcycle tires. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the sad thing is that beautiful bike spent most of its time sitting in my garage because it just wasn't... Uh, as versatile as my other bikes. And we saw that, uh, that big swing from your typical mountain bike tire all the way out to those five inch fat bike tires. And then it swung back a little bit to, you know, plus, you know, 27.5 plus and 29 plus. And so define like the, the, the fat width of a plus tire. So you're looking at about three inches, uh, sometimes more. And so, you know, then it became a matter of, yeah, well, you got to go big because, you know, volume is it's better for the ride and it's faster descending and it, but it's heavier. So it sucks on the climbs. You know, it was this, it was this thing we're compromising, but we want to get these benefits out of it. And even the plus size tires, the 3.0s have kind of petered out. And now we're, yep. we're in that 2.4 to 2.6 range. Um, and that's about where we should be. Um, those, you know, the days of the 1.9, 2.1 XC tires, uh, those are probably gone for most people. Uh, but I think that the 2.4 to 2.6 range really capitalizes on the big volume for a better ride quality, more traction, uh, without getting into like, oh my God, I got to carry these things up the hill, you know, and it's just brutal. Um, and, it, and it's happened on the roadside too. 
uh, we, we, well, actually, I think we're still in the pendulum swing on the, on the road side. Would you, would you agree with that? Or do you think we're, we're where we need to be? Well, I would say, yeah, number 12 is a road bike evolution of, of uh, pushing things as far as we're able to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starting off with lightweight. I remember the Valenus Buyer's Guide years and years ago of the 900-gram frame. That, mm-hmm. was the, mm-hmm. that was the the best we could do at that point. And frames have since gotten lighter and lighter. Uh, for a while, the stiffness was was the um, the ultimate yeah. thing a road bike could be. My spine remembers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and there's you don't there is a benefit to some stiffness, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in your you know, the, your chain stays when you put effort into the pedals. You want mm-hmm. it to propel you forward, not just wobble back and forth. Right. But you can take that too far. So right. I think that's that's kind of the evolution of the road bike for this decade was we've, we now have, for most high-end straight-ahead road bikes, you're getting some of the compliance that we saw from endurance bikes, pushing that as far as you can. You're seeing some of the aerodynamic benefits of pushing aero as far as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, you're getting some of the stiffness, the the stiffness to weight ratio uh, of lessons learned from chasing that beast, um, but they're done in a balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you end up with a good you end up with a good bike that's fun to ride, not right. not a novelty that mm-hmm. wins on one particular chart. Right, and and I think a lot of brands have taken different paths to that. I mean, if you look at something like the new Cannondale Super 6 uh, Evo, which... Yeah, is, great example. Yeah, I mean, it's it's base, it's an all-around bike, but it's got, you know, aero shaping, and you see that, just one glance at it, you can see that, but it also borrows elements from the endurance category with drop seat stays. And yep. so you're, you're getting this, this mass of different design cues from all these different categories that are really just becoming one. But then you look at something like Trex Madone. That thing looks like full-on aero beast, Sure, but sure. it's it's pretty comfortable. I mean, and, and it's, it's super comfy. It's yeah. great to ride. Yeah, so I mean, you're again seeing those those combinations uh, come together in pretty interesting packages. Sure. So dovetails to number eleven. Yes. Wide road tires. Wide road tires. And and what we would call wide <laughs> ten years ago, what we call wide now, mm. uh, far apart. So I was just looking back through 2010 catalog spec. 23 millimeters was that was a wide road tire. Oh my god! Once upon a time, and it's now an ice like, skate. <laughs> like even aero bikes, like the you know the foil you're on today, yeah. comes you know, an aero bike, mm-hmm. dedicated straight ahead aero bike. Yep, comes stock with 28 mil tires. Right. right. Why did that happen? I think we like as you said, we started listening to our spines. Yeah. <laughs> I started listening to Leonard Zinn, who kept telling me that wider is better. Well, sir, yeah, I think spending time looking, you know, we're talking about charts, look at rolling resistance charts, mm-hmm. uh, wider is typically better to a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that has to be balanced with aerodynamics. Um, so it's, it's a cumulative, holistic take right. on things. Right. Yeah, and, and I think one of the uh, common misconceptions about wider tires is that uh, they're they're slower because there's more tire well yeah there's, and, there's more mass and there is that that's a real thing inertia right. is a real thing absolutely absolutely but i think the other thing to consider is is your contact patch um the wider tire makes uh, a different contact patch that actually is less material contacting with the ground at one time and so the rolling resistance is actually improved yeah 
so it, it's a, it's pretty interesting, and you can read about that uh, in Velo News. Uh, Leonard Zinn has done a lot of great writing about that. So you know, I don't think the trend of wider tires is going away. Have we hit peak wide? Do you think? Are we going to go wider from here? Is 32 going to be the new 28 next year? Depends on where the road goes. Is this a paved road? Is it a gravel uh, road? That is a very good question. What well, I, I tune back in in 10 yeah. years from now and yeah. we'll answer this. All right. So we know that road bikes have evolved. The tire choice for roadies has evolved. But now we also know that the roadies themselves have evolved and they're riding more, number 10, indoors on Zwift. Tell me about Zwift, Ben. You're, you spend a lot of time on Zwift. What is Zwift and why, why does it matter? Man, everybody knows what Zwift is. Okay. All right, let's just skip this part. Fast forward. Everybody fast forward. No, I'm all in on Zwift. Uh, September 2014 uh, was the launch. There was a launch in London and one in San Francisco. Went to that one. And there's uh, two distinct reactions among the assembled journalists and writers there. Uh, one was skeptical. Why would I ever do this? And the other, typically from people who live in cities, uh, in northern climes, parents were like, you know, there could be something to this. Uh, since then, it's blown up, especially just in the last two years or so, mm-hmm. I'd say. It's really started to hit its stride. Now yeah. we've got uh, national championships, UCI world championships slated for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it started to hit critical mass where on any given day or night, you can jump in and there's events every 10 to 15 minutes with dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of people in there that you can ride with, train with, race with, talk with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really that the, the technology is incredible in terms of the modeling based on aerodynamics, some of the factors that we were talking about mm-hmm. when, um, applied in modeling to uh, watts per kilo, how much power you're putting out, how much you weigh, uh, and that's figured into the virtual courses. Mm-hmm. Um, the graphics are cool, but I think the real magic in what's making it work is the fact that there are so many real-life cyclists in there uh, interacting in real time, mm-hmm. which for many of us, is that's part of the, the attraction of the sport. Is mm-hmm. uh, Sure, the physical aspects and the endorphin buzz and taking corners fast, mm-hmm. but a lot of it's the, the social interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the real magic of it is that it's actually gotten me to ride inside. I typically hate riding inside. Um, Zwift definitely makes it... Dare I say, it makes it fun. Yeah, it's a game. <laughs> Games are fun. Yeah, it, it actually kind of hurt a little to say that, but it is true. It, it, it is much more fun now. Well, welcome, welcome to this point. I, I don't even know myself anymore. All right. Number nine. <laughs> Number nine. Back to, back to how roadies have been evolving. Number nine is road disc brakes. Do you think anybody's got opinions about road disc brakes out there? Oh, yeah. there's oh, kidding me. <laughs> Um, so in the, in the pro sphere, what we saw the UCI give its blessing in the end of 2015, mm-hmm. but we didn't on a see limited them. trial. Okay, maybe yeah. you can you know one or two riders can mm-hmm. can try out this crazy new technology. Uh, we saw 2016 the Francisco Ventosa mm-hmm. incident at incident. Uh, Roubaix, his leg sliced up. And the, the haters were quick to say, see, mm-hmm. I told you so. These spinning knives of doom, they're, <laughs> they're here for our children. We must not allow them. UCI yeah. banned them again. Or the, the, the test was, was put on hold. Uh, somehow we've moved on. Mm-hmm. We've, we've healed our wounds, yes, including Ventosa. Yeah. Uh, 2017. Marcel Kittel won the first Grand Tour stage on disc brakes. So it turns out, yes, you can still go fast on a bicycle with disc brakes. How about that? How about it? Especially if you're Marcel Kittel. 
cool thing with disc brakes, aside from their obvious superior braking, is that it's allowed us a lot more wiggle room for tires. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing I'll notice is we're sw- swapping around with test bikes here at Velen. We still have a lot of rim brake bikes, or still have some rim brake bikes. A few, yeah. Can't stick a wide tire Mm-mm. in a rim caliber, it turns yep. out. So just the, the freedom of tire choice is, mm-hmm. is a, uh, I think, as much of a benefit as the superior braking. Yeah. I think mountain bikers also need to um, really thank the roadies because it gave them endless supply of things to make fun of for years and years. Hey, we're here for you, man. (laughs) (laughs) Joke fodder. Yeah, that's what roadies are good at, right? We're good at that. All right, number eight uh, is uh, something, Ben, you have a lot of experience with and uh, the evolution in particular of it over the last decade and also how disc brakes have sort of played into that evolution. Number eight is carbon clinchers. You want to talk a little bit about what your experience has been with those over the last decade? First time I rode carbon clinchers, those puppies popped open on me like, Soft tacos mm. folding under too much uh, chili sauce. That's a delicious analogy. Yeah, if, if road disc brakes had preceded carbon clinchers, uh, we would have had a lot fewer issues and accidents. Um, now, uh, the, you know, the main issue, as you listeners are probably quite aware, with carbon clinchers is they're being asked, the brake surface is being asked to do a few things, dissipate heat, uh, and remain structurally sound. And this, the, the act of braking creates friction, which creates heat, which can melt the things and cause them to pop open, which is what I and many others have experienced uh, over the years. <clears throat> when you have a carbon clincher that is a disc brake model, you take the friction and the heat out of it, you're good to go. Uh, having a carbon clincher for inertia is a nice thing overall lower weight is a good thing mm-hmm. um so our timing as a as a bike industry was just a little bit off mm-hmm. and with disc brakes too uh i think we we've like we said with calipers disc brake calipers it's it's sort of uh led us into a world of wider rims uh which yep. which just offer more versatility across platforms too so it's been quite an evolution over the last uh, decade for carbon clinchers from the days of, of you know your carbon delaminating pretty regularly on uh, long mountain descents to where we are now with pretty reliable carbon hoops. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's just easier to manipulate the shapes. You can uh, get a wider rim, as you said, to, to match the profile of a wider tire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing uh, various iterations on brake track surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. So we're there now. We are there. We have reached the top of the mountain. Everybody can give up and go home. All right, number seven is all about getting around GPS units. Uh, what's what's so special about GPS units uh, aside from the fact that they're cool and tell us where we're going and track everything? For this decade, you know, let's let's, let's go back to the Garmin Edge five hundred. You know, it seems like that was, in some ways, the uh, the kickstart of yeah, the everybody of having one. So we went from having like a cat eye where it's just a speedometer basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to the type of thing that now plays well with Strava and becomes such a part of our experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that 500, you know, it goes back to the 2009 Interbike, but we'll call that for this decade because it was available actually for, for riders in 2010. Yeah, And I mean, just think about how much we've advanced since that that early model, which was not much more sophisticated than than an old wired cat eye, you know, tracking your speed and time and distance and a few other metrics, to things now that are basically iPhones, uh, but with a little more shatter 
resistance right, right. built into them. <laughs> God, I hope. <laughs> and and yeah, I think the big the big uh, thing to note here is that what what was sort of a specialty back then is now sort of on everybody's bike, and it's part of the everyday ex- ride experience. Uh, and the integration that those head units can have with things like Swift and power meters and, and, and all this other stuff to really bring all this data uh, to the rider. It's pretty incredible uh, how, how, how far we've come with that. Um, yeah, now I just expect my computer's going to tell me not just the basics, but things like when my phone buzzes in my pocket, is that my daughter calling? Do I right. need to pull over and take that call right away? Or right. is that work and I'm going to blow it off? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and I think the, the types of data it's offering, like this new Leomo device that I've been testing, the Type S, I mean, it can track your actual body movements. I mean, I think we're really, we're heading into, we've, we've headed from a very basic device to something that's quite, quite in-depth. Uh, and I think the next decade, we're going to see it expand even more uh, to really give you a sense of what data can do for you. Agreed. All right. Number six. Number six. The evolution of mountain bikes. So just just to be clear, uh, I'm I'm looking up at marginally talented uh, as a racer, but I did cut my teeth uh, as a mountain biker and was was okay at it. I was pretty okay. We'll, we'll, we'll stop it okay. <laughs> um, and and in the time that I've been riding mountain bikes, which is quite a long time, more than more than just a decade, um, the the bikes themselves have evolved um, immensely. Uh, and I think back to, you know, 2003, 2004, I was r- racing cross country on a hardtail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that Olympics and the Beijing Olympics in t- 2008, XC sort of fizzled and died. Uh, and we saw the birth of trail and enduro yep. over the course of the next several years. Um, and most recently, we are now seeing the birth of something people are starting to call down country. Uh, and so, again, we're back to that pendulum swing. XC went away. We swung all the way out to these long travel uh, bikes like enduro bikes. And, uh, you know, if, you're, if you've been around long enough to remember free ride bikes. Uh, and now, you know, it, it, we've swung a little bit back toward the trail end. It's even going farther back toward the XC end again, where these downcountry bikes are sort of combining the elements of XC bikes. So you can actually climb on the things um, with smart components and smart geometry that allows you to descend really well. So we're seeing, we, we saw mountain bikers sort of experiment with the long travel and now they're coming back. And here in the middle lies these ultra capable bikes that can really handle anything you can throw at it. Like, for example, right now, um, I am riding a Revel Rail, or excuse me, Revel Rascal. Uh, that's 130 millimeters in the back. It comes stock with 140 millimeters up front. I upgraded to 160. Um, and that's a bike that can handle any trail around here. I even took it to Winter Park and did a downhill day on it. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing things like uh, Yeti's SB100, which has just 100 millimeters of travel, and that's just just as capable on a lot of the trails that I ride. So really, the evolution over the last decade has has been that uh, that sort of suspension travel swing, pendulum swing. We went mm-hmm. way big, uh, and then we, we've come back uh, a little bit, and now we're even seeing things like um, new suspension. We're, we're we're seeing you know the telescoping fork get a challenger in in things like Dave Weigel's trust suspension, which is a linkage fork. Um, mountain bikers are definitely uh, a good crowd for for new technology. They definitely uh, evolve very quickly, and I think this this decade has seen a wholesale facelift many times over for what mountain bikers are riding every day. Sure. Speaking of a technology that now is commonplace but was brand new for this decade. One by yeah. number five. Number five. One by drivetrains. Yeah, one by drivetrains started again it, uh, on the mountain bike side. It was uh, 
really uh, the front derailleur, man, I, I, there's never any love lost for the poor front derailleur, you know, it's just, it's always in the way, it always breaks, it's always rubbing on something. But the fact of the matter is, uh, as chains got uh, stronger, the ability to uh, open up the chain line a little bit became uh, more possible. And so we saw wider and wider gear ranges on cassettes. And that lends itself uh, in particular to mountain biking because mountain bikers spend a lot of time in low gears, um, climbing and such like that. So you need that bailout gear. Um, the, the, the one by drivetrain is really coming down to a matter of simplicity. Um, getting rid of things that you just don't need or want where you can you know, simplify your, your cockpit uh, which opened up a spot for your dropper post lever. I mean, it was just this this crazy evolution, but uh, really it was born on the mountain bike side and then came over to uh, probably, well, you know, gravel cyclocross maybe. I, don't, I mean, it was, it's still been pretty slow to take off on the road and it really hasn't taken off on the road as, as some companies might have hoped. Sure, we saw it, uh, you know, 2015, 2016 pop up uh, to begin with on road bikes. I remember like Specialized had a, uh, an LA model mm-hmm. with rival one by uh they don't any longer right uh 2018 we saw the 3t strata pop up in european road racing under aqua blue sport um again did not stick right uh because yeah it turns out having a full gear range is is nice that's pretty nice you know, yeah. very few of us have been on a ride where we wished for fewer gears mm-hmm. um Gravel is, seems to be a, like a sweet spot. Like having that simplicity uh, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, but that, that could be another example of the pendulum settling. Yeah. Well, I also think that with road in particular, one of the issues with one by is that the jumps between gears become pretty uh, harsh uh, and large. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas you know, in the mountain bike world, that doesn't matter as much, uh, and gravel probably even less so. But um, we're now seeing, you know, the way even even cassettes work now with some things like, you know, SRAM's uh, ETAP axis. They totally changed their their gear ratios uh, so that you get they redesigned their cassette so that whether on this 12 speed cassette, you get more jumps of one cog between gears. Yeah. So it actually smooths that out. So. You know, could we feasibly see one by take off? It's it's absolutely possible. Uh, is it there yet? Nah, probably not on the road. Uh, mountain bike, absolutely. Gravel, it's looking pretty good. <laughs> Cyclocross, even. Sure. Uh, could be. Could yeah, be. so that's one that SRAM kicked off. Another one that SRAM kicked off, number four. Number four. Wireless shifting. Yes, big. Uh, I, I, uh, I've been riding mostly ETAP this year. It's just That's just by happenstance. Uh, a lot of the test bikes I've gotten uh, have been ETAP. Uh, and I rode the first ETAP iteration in 2015. I spotted it at the Tour de France that year. Uh, it was on uh, AG2R's bikes, and uh, it has evolved rapidly since then. Uh, we are now in the ETAP axis phase of that development, which is basically SRAM's second-generation ETAP, more refined, and like I said, the gear ratios have changed. Uh, there's, there's more integration with uh, ETAP Eagle, uh, which is the mountain bike component, so you can do what what SRAM loves to call a Franken-bike. Okay, so we have wireless shifting, but we're not done with electronics. Number three is e-bikes. Again, this is another one where nobody nobody has any opinions about these. No opinions no at opinions all. No opinions at all. <laughs> and, and again, were e-bikes developed in this decade? No. I mean, you can go back to the 1800s and find patents for e-bikes in the 
the late 1800s. No but kidding. I feel like, uh, at least in the U.S. of A., in the last two to four years, it's really exploded from something that you had heard of to something that you're now seeing, at least in certain parts of the country, that sure. you're seeing out on the roads and trails and mm-hmm. paths more mm-hmm. often. And it's gone from a, a novelty to something that people would consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also transcending uh, the the sport rider crowd, that, you know, the person who rides for fitness, but also the mobility side of things where we're seeing these as a viable option to replace your car or at least, you know, take your car off the road more often. Uh, so it's it has this sort of transcendent positioning right now, which is really interesting to watch. And I think the next the next decade, if we're looking forward, is going to be very telling to see uh, how e-bikes integrate into both the bike world and society at large. In Europe, I think there's a there's you could look at certain places in Europe and kind of get a hint of what might be coming our way. But you know, Americans have our own you know infrastructure and and, and yeah. approach to these things. So it'd be interesting to see how we embrace these or not. Uh, on to number two, which is another uh, new-ish uh, category, I guess you could say, uh, which has just taken the bike world by storm. I would say in the last two years, it's probably really taken off most significantly, and that's gravel bikes. Gravel. Gravel road. Everybody loves it. Yeah. I love it. Gravel even, even you, grumpy old Dan, recently love the gravel. It's a new love. It's a new love. So let's put a date on this sucker. I mean, I think the salsa deserves credit as an early leader in the category, uh, and they can trace their history back to the Warbird. Uh, John Miser was had a prototype together in 2009 that uh, went on to become a, a production bike in this decade. Um, yeah, some of the early gripes were like, "How is this different than a cyclocross bike?" Like, well, the bottom bracket's a little bit lower. There's a little bit better tire clearance. The handling is a bit slacker, uh, but critically, there's it's just a comfier ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not racing for 40 to 60 minutes. You're out there for far too long, far <laughs> far too long. Yes, indeed, and and you know that I think that again, this is another one that uh, you could claim evolved from mountain bikes. Uh, you know, we as as gravel bikes become more versatile and evolve uh they are starting to look a little bit like mountain bikes of old um sure but you know i think i think it's a sport that's growing into its own and is requiring a tool specific to that that kind of uh ride i mean you know you, yeah it, you might want those big fat tires and a flat bar for certain parts of a gravel course but you wouldn't want it for the whole thing so it's it's interesting to see uh gravel bikes continue to evolve but but the sport itself is just growing so fast and i think we're it's not going away at all uh this this one is a a a true category growth it's not a fad uh it took me a long time to admit that (laughs) but here we are yeah but the 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 passion the drive is there i mean big sugar Mm -hmm. a race that has not yet happened sold out in five minutes five minutes and i can tell you why i mean i rode the course uh, and I was just telling Ben, we just went for a lunch ride, and I just I told you on that lunch ride, I said, you know, it, that big sugar gravel course, I rode it in the pouring rain. It was freezing cold, and it was during that experience where I was like, oh, I get it. Gravel's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but... <laughs> but Tune back in 10 years yeah. for, for Dan's take on... Yeah. <laughs> on hypothermia and all things gravel. All right, we have arrived at number one on our biggest tech stories of the decade list 
what could it be? What do you think it could possibly be? All right, I'm going to say it. Quick drum roll. Number one is electronic drivetrains. Tell me about them, Ben. It's a game changer. You know, DI2 kicked it off. Well, if you really want to go back, Mavic, Mectronic, Mectronic. once upon a time, Mm -hmm. did it. Yeah. That did not catch on. Mm -mm. Thus, electronic drivetrains are the story of this decade. This decade. Campagnolo, surprisingly, followed quickly thereafter in 2011 with mm-hmm. its EPS. Yeah, not as widely adopted, but let the record show they were they were in there before SRAM, which came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2015. Should be noted too that EPS shifts beautifully. I really I enjoy EPS experience. Different shift layout, but definitely cool. So tell me this: Why should we care about electronic shifting? Well, a lot of reasons. First of all, uh, as somebody who is blighted with the small hand curse. Uh, <laughs> my little tiny, tiny hands. Uh, electronic shifting is much easier to use. Uh, it's a better user experience because, you know, if you've if you've been you go back a few years to a, you know a Shimano Ultegra 105 or even you know an old Campy uh, uh, paddle system, there's a big throw for that lever to yep. get it to shift in certain directions. My so I was moving my entire hand sometimes just to move that paddle. Whereas with electronic shifting, it's just a, a move of the finger. It's a slight movement. So it's a better experience for a wider variety of users. Um, but also the shifting is much quicker, smoother, more reliable. Uh, it really, I mean it's just it's just a better system. How often do you have to tune your rear derailleur on an electronic system uh, shifting system? Never. Yeah, exactly. Never. Electric drivetrains are also interesting in that they've introduced a whole new category of problems for us. Yes. You know, used to, when you have a, a, you know, a generic problem on your bike, especially in racing, is referred to as a mechanical. Like mm-hmm. It's a you know, flat tire, your chain comes off, whatever. It's, what happened to him? Yeah. What happened to her? Yeah. They had a mechanical. mechanical. Now we can have an electrical. <laughs> you know, whether it's your battery going out or a cable popping open. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen sometimes you ride over... Trail, railroad tracks and your lever comes down and all of a sudden you can't shift your mm-hmm. DI2 and there's just uh, a whole category of issues that have popped up which gave fodder to the haters that see this is a stupid technology right. we should have, never should have changed anything right you can make the same argument about laptops that yeah you, you forget to char- charge them and they will no longer work do I want to go back to a typewriter <laughs> no I do not yeah it, and I, I think too I mean you know we also saw the evolution from uh, wires to wireless this decade, which I think is really the future. And I think, uh, I think we're going to see more brands figure out a way to simplify their electronic shifting systems. Uh, I think, uh, SRAM is, is ahead of the game there and it's, it's been incredible to watch what they've been able to do with this, with this, uh, wireless technology when, uh, they were facing a lot of, uh, patents and things that they had to work around by by Shimano, who who is revolutionary in every sense of the word. I mean, they've created everything, and I imagine Shimano is going to come out with with something big next. And and I can't wait to see what it is. But I bet it's going to be honed and beautiful. Honed. Remember that word? Honed. It's the word of the decade. Yes. Well, this has been fun. Thanks, yeah. Dan. No, thank you, Ben. And uh, for any of you out there who think our list is total BS and we totally botched it, we'd love to hear what you think your uh, top 20 uh, advancements in tech this decade were. And if you have any questions about this podcast or any of the other podcasts in the Velo News sphere, please do tweet at me, at Brown Tide Dan. You can also find me on Instagram. And you can find Ben Delaney on Strava. 
at Ben Delaney. All right, guys. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. And to all of you listening, thank you for listening, and we will see you next episode.